Hey ladies, I'm here to read chapter 10 with you. I am currently sitting at Paloma Park. Well, Ryder does soccer. I kind of tried to find this um, area to tuck myself so it doesn't seem weird I'm reading out loud to my phone, but there's still people all around, so we'll see how this goes. Chapter 10 is titled Unafraid, and it begins on page 106. So there is a page of bulleted things right before the chapter begins, so I'm going to read those because I believe it goes with the chapter. It says, what if my worst nightmare comes true? They probably think I'm blank, blank, blank. I'm not good enough for this. Did I say that the wrong way? What will happen to me if blank, blank, blank? Everything is out of control. I'm so inadequate at my job. He's probably going to fire me any minute. Something horrible is going to happen to them. Chapter 10, unafraid. I choose to surrender my fears to God. My chest was so tight I couldn't breathe. It was a Sunday night before a busy week and I was excited about everything ahead of me. Why couldn't I catch a breath? I sat in my head, in my bed, <laughs> or in my head too probably. I sat in my bed because I didn't know where else to be. It was as if my body were, t were yelling, something is wrong, and my mind was racing to figure out what it was. I've noticed that sometimes our minds seem to lag behind our emotions while our bodies are right in sync sending us cues that something internal is happening. In fact, I think it's a gift that God built our bodies to send us signals that we might be spiraling in a dangerous direction. I was in the middle of writing this book and I sensed God using this moment of spiraling confusion to remind me that taking every thought captive isn't merely a helpful process to adopt. Don't forget, Jenny, this is all out war. Zach sat next to me as I wrapped my arms around my middle as if holding myself together. When I half-jokingly bribed him to bum a Xanax off our neighbors, he lovingly informed me, that would be illegal, baby. So I sat still, I prayed, and I searched my mind for what my body was telling me was wrong. Sure enough, as I started digging into the crevices of recent patterns of thinking, I noticed something. Yes, I was excited about the awesome opportunities for ministry in the coming weeks, but a subtle lie had begun to overshadow them all. The subtle lies can feel like a heavy coat we unconsciously slip into, perhaps out of habit on a perfectly warm sunny day. The spiral I had entered into was this, what if I fail? What if I'm not enough for this work? Adding weight to all that, the unfamiliar whisper from the dark, I am worthless. I've been walking around with this vague, undefined heaviness. If it had been in a conscious thought, I would have immediately fought it and chosen the truth. God is enough for me. God chooses the least qualified. He gets the glory. I don't have to measure up. But I hadn't even noticed what was happening until the lie pulled into a spiral and my body revealed the anxiety that had been spinning. Worried about many things. How many of us are dragging through our days weighed down by anxiety? Many of us find our thoughts circling around prob problematic circumstances or people. For others of us, anxiety has become the soundtrack of our days so familiar we hardly notice it playing in the background of every scene. Please know that I'm talking here about thought patterns. 
not about anxiety that is rooted in our body chemistry and for which I urge you to seek professional help if this is your situation. The enemy has ensnared us in two, with two little words, what if. With those two little words, he sets our imaginations whirling, spinning tails of the doom that lurks ahead. But our tool for defeating what if is not surprisingly found in two words. Because God. Because God clothes the lilies of the field and frees the, bird, the birds in the air, we don't need to be anxious about tomorrow. Because God has poured his love into our hearts, our hope will not be put to shame. Because God chose us to be saved by his strength, we can stand firm in our faith no matter what the day holds. Freedom begins when we notice what it is that is binding us. Then we can interrupt it with truth. Anxiety says, what if? What if I get too close to that person and she manipulates me like the last friend I trusted? What if my spouse cheats on me? What if my children die tragically? What if my boss decides I'm expandable? Expendable. What if, what if, what if? Certainly there are healthy levels of anxiety that signal our brains to be afraid of things that are truly worth being afraid of, like a bear in the woods or oncoming traffic when we cross a street. As an editor for Medical News Today noted, it is when the life-saving mechanisms is triggered in inappropriate times or gets stuck in the on position that it becomes a problem. The type of anxiety that sends our thoughts spiraling is when our emotional reaction to scary things goes beyond rational to illogical because our brain fear, our brain's fear networks are in overdrive. We keep finding new concerns to worry about and new faucets to, eat, to each concern as if by constantly stewing, we can prepare ourselves for what's to come. We experience palpable physical responses to things that are not real threats. And our future tense fears are leaving us bound up in tight chest, unable to relax or be present, utterly forgetting that there is a God who will give us what we need today, the next week, and 20 years from now, even if our very worst nightmares come true. We are what-ifing ourselves to death. But there is a better way because we have a choice. A lie? I cannot trust God to take care of my tomorrow. The truth? God is in control of every day of my life. The very hairs on my head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. I choose to surrender my fears to God. On page 111, it has another diagram showing we have a choice, starting with emotion, going down to consequence on one side, starting with emotion, going up to consequence on the other side. What is real? Paul knew we would spiral, so he told us to replace the lies with something surprising. In Philippians 4, he wrote, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. First, I want you to see what he called us to. It's not just a suggestion, but a clear instruction. 
Do not be anxious about anything. Anything? Anything? How could Paul say that? Does God really command this, this of us? Well, Paul had plenty to be anxious about. When he wrote those words, he may, you may remember, he was locked in prison with a death sentence on his head. Paul meant what he wrote. He meant it for one simple reason. This earth is not our home, and our home in heaven is secure. So if death is not to be feared, what exactly do we have to be scared of? God's promise gives us ultimate hope in absolutely every circumstance. He meets every need. He will resolve, in the end, every problem we may face here on earth. Paul wrote confidently of this truth. And then he gave us clear guidance for writing ourselves of anxious thought, for ridding ourselves of anxious thoughts. Choose to be grateful. Choose to think about what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. For just a moment, let's zero in on those replacement thoughts. Whatever is true, think about such things. What gets most of us in trouble isn't real fears. We worry about things that may never happen. In fact, research shows that 97% of what you worry about is not much more than a fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misperceptions. My sister Katie is a six on the Enneagram, a modern personality typing system with century-old roots. And she constantly cracks me up because about 50% of our conversations center on hypothetical scenarios. On the Enneagram, I am a seven. What this means for Katie and me is that while she is forever figuring out how things go wrong, I'm fixated on all that could go right. I dare say it's easier for someone of my type to follow Paul's instructions here. Still, regardless of personality, God had call, has called us to hope, to joy, to perseverance, to think of what is true. In the Gospel of John, we find an incredible description of the enemy. Jesus was frustrated because there are all kinds of confusion around what he was doing and why. He said to those arguing against him, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his character for he is a liar and the father of lies truth is the most powerful weapon we have against the enemy who is a liar and the father of lies so we fight the enemy with whatever is true meaning whatever is real take a look at the tool on the facing page. Take one of the anxious thoughts you are running around in that head of yours and write it down. So what is the thought? Now diagnose the thought. Is it true? Take it one step further and consider what does God say about this thought? To answer that question, you consult scripture and you do that with trusted people in your community. You say, here's this thought and what does God say about it? What is the truth? Then you have to make a choice. Will you believe God or believe the lie? I think most of us are probably good at finding the thought, recognizing it as a lie, and even though, and even knowing what the truth is. But we fail in the last step, 
We keep believing the lie, acting on it, letting the what-ifs stir our thoughts into a frenzy. What I realized in emerging from my 18-month spiral of doubt was that I had to go to war. I had to read God's word and find every weapon available to fight it. Don't you know that Paul had to do this while imprisoned? He had to fight for belief. To me, to live in Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what I shall, what shall I choose? I do not know. So there's a diagram on page 115. It's grabbing the thought, diagnosing the thought, take it to God and make it a choice. I have this printed out, which we will go over when we meet up and work on that. But kind of pre-think about it so that you can come with um, something to do on that worksheet that night. Page 116. Yes, faith is a gift, but it is a hard-won gift at times. Paul wrote honestly of how God met with him in his struggle. Okay. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. I was deeply conformed by that. I re it reassured me that my own fight for faith is a work in progress. I can keep teaching the Bible, I can continue to lead if, and I can continue to take my kids to church because God is real. My feelings are based largely not on what is real, but on made-up narratives in my head. But what is real? God is real. He is not going anywhere, even if my mind jumps to all the dark places. I can rely on my thoughts or I can't rely on my thoughts or feelings to hold my faith in place. God helps hold my faith in place. But what do I do? The woman standing before me was really was reeling with anxiety. Her teenage daughter Her teenage daughter was making some seriously poor decisions in life, and this mama's heart was breaking into a thousand pieces. With tears in her eyes, she looked at me and asked, Jenny, what do I do? What do I do? I've heard countless women ask this question, women facing all sorts of challenges, cheating husbands and debilitating ad addictions and failed financial ventures and wayward kids and devastating diagnosis and, and, and... Each time after they explain what had been trying their patience and tempting their hearts and tripping them, they ask the same question, what do I do? What they're wondering is what they do to fix the situation or to fix their perspective or to keep pain and suffering at bay. Or if none of those things are a possibility, they want me to tell them how in the world they keep moving forward without giving in to desperation and despair. What do we do? We confront our thoughts. We tear down strongholds by the power of God. We figure out if we are believing something untrue and unreal about God and ourselves, and we go to battle there. Psst. Let me tell you the greatest news. You are not God, and you are not... Obs... I don't know. Obsess... Um, I mean... I don't know. Not even going to try. When we allow our thoughts to spin out of control with worry and fear, either conscientiously or unconscientiously, we try to elbow our way into the all-knowing role that only God can play. We forget that it's actually good news 
that he is in control and we are not. You and I may have many gifts and talents, but being God is not one of them. Now, this is easier preached and harder lived, but that's why you are going to stick together and steep in God's word. Change is difficult and may come slowly. After all, our fears arise from ingrained thoughts and entangled sins, but because we have made new creations, we have the Spirit's power to make the choice the truth. Changing our minds is possible. When we recognize the lie resting heavily on your shoulders, you can take off that suffocating coat and set it aside. What fear-filled thought is Satan using to suffocate your faith? Name it. Say its name. I'm afraid that I won't be able to withstand whatever the future might hold. I choose to believe God will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I can endure and will always give me the strength to overcome temptation. I'm afraid that everyone will abandon me. I choose to believe God has promised not to leave me and he has always keeps his promises. I'm afraid of losing everything and everyone I love. I choose to believe God will sustain me in my brightest moments of victory and my darkest moments of suffering. I'm afraid of being found out. I choose to believe God knows every thought before I think it and loves me. I'm afraid what I'm really not capable of I'm afraid that I'm really not capable of doing this job. I choose to believe God has given me everything I need to live a godly life. I'm afraid of being rejected. I choose to believe God has accepted me as his child and will never leave me. I'm afraid of not living up their expectations. I choose to believe God wants me to seek his approval only and release the pressure to please people. I'm afraid of failing miserably for everyone to see. I choose to believe God specializes in taking weakness and using it for his glory. This is how we fight the spiral. We pull the thoughts out of our heads and we steal all their power and then replace them with what is true. Anxious for nothing. My friend Jackie has tried to get pregnant for five years. The ache in her soul has been nearly unbearable. I was with her not long ago and her despair had grown so intense that she was losing all hope in God, in life, in life, in God, and his good and perfect gifts. She looked at me as if to say, what if he passes over me? What if my dreams can't come true? As we talked with a whole herd of people she loved surrounding her, woman after woman loaned Jackie her faith. They weren't believing God on Jackie's behalf for a child to show up in her womb. They were believing God on Jackie's behalf regardless of what may come. She left our time glowing and hopeful, eyes on the set on trying some ch new challenges and embracing a world that may not contain a child in her womb. Because God is perfect, because God is good and perfect, even when life is not, and she is choosing to believe he is in control. There are no promises that our worst fears won't come true. Sometimes they do, but even God remains our unfailing hope. Cancer can come against us, yet God's power it will not win, at least not in the end. My spouse may be unfaithful, yet God's power and fidelity won't define our lives. Financial crisis can come against us, yet God's power, we can move forward. Disillusionments and doubts can come against us, yet God's power, they won't have the last word. My sister-in-law Ashley reads Corey Ten's Boom's book, The Hiding Place, every year. She says it reminds her that no matter what the coming months hold for her and her family, God is enough. Recently, as I confined in her some fears about one of my kids, she reminded me of this story.
story told in the book. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he said gently, when I go to Amsterdam, when I, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffled a few times considering this. Why just before we get on the train? Exactly. Why just before we get on the train? Exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need, just in time. We always have exactly what we need when we need it. Do we believe that? If we believe we have the choice to trust instead of fear, then how will choosing to trust cause us to live? We will live in what is true of us, which is that we have the mind of Christ. Paul declared this to be true in Philippians 2.5. Has this mind among us, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So do what you do when we start to spin. We do the work. We risk telling someone, even if it's what we're worrying, even if it's we're worrying about sounding silly. We actively choose to close the curtain on fearful, untrue thoughts. We remind ourselves God is true and we cast our anxieties on him. You may have to do this a hundred times a day. And we, may, and we claim the peace of God as our promise. After my recent sun, Sunday evening bout with anxiety, I phoned a friend. Kelly listened as I said it all, even the last 2% that made me feel ashamed. And then she laughed a little and said, Okay, Jenny, this is a lie from the devil, and you're not going to let this paralyze you anymore. She fought for me, and when I couldn't pull myself out, she lifted me out. Friend? I want to do the same for you. Please hear me. No matter how your life looks today, no matter what tomorrow holds, God does care for us. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? O oh, we of little faith, we are seen and cared for, and there is nothing to fear because God has us. The end of chapter 10. Hey ladies, I'm here to do chapter 11 for you. Um, I like to give you a little bit of background about what I'm doing when I'm reading it because I've been doing the readings in several different places lately, as I've been telling you. But today, this morning, I stopped and got myself an iced coffee after I had to drop off a poop sample at the vet since, the, um, since I was over that way. That's why I got the iced coffee. And now I am sitting in the dentist parking lot waiting to go in for my cleaning. And I have about 20 minutes, so I thought I'd hop on and do the reading in the car. So that is where I am at, where I am at to read to you. So we're doing chapter 11 and it's titled, A Beautiful Interruption, I Choose to Delight in God. And this begins on page 124 actually, with um, some bulleted points here. So it says, if I don't look out for myself, who will? Nothing is as good as it seems. If I've learned anything, it's that you should never trust what people say. If I don't keep my guard up, I'll get taken advantage of. Don't get your hopes up. You'll just be letting yourself 
setting yourself up for a fall. Belief is for fools. I'm fine. I don't need help from anyone or anything. So those are the bullet points. Now let's begin with chapter 11. My team from If Gathering and I went... My team from If Gathering and I eat Tex-Mex together a lot. Recently, we were at Matt's El Rancho eating queso and discussing optimism. I had been studying the subject and thinking that we all, both as individuals and as a team, needed more of it. My if-gathering team feels more like the best of war buddies than office mates. We have been through a few battles together. That afternoon at Matt's, we were talking specifically about the opposite of optimism, cynicism. My research into negative thinking had confirmed that, as with all spiritual thought patterns, we always have a choice. We may not choose the situations and the people in our lives, but we can choose how we react. We get to choose how our minds and therefore our lives will go. Here's the analogy I shared with them to try to make my point. If we went together to a party one evening and the people we sat next to were complaining about the tasteless food, the lame playlist, and the rude host, We'd come away with the impression that the party had been a bad experience. Truth be told, we might not have minded the food or the environment, but those gripes would sway us to the negative side. We would walk away thinking that was a terrible party. But if we went to the same party and instead sat next to people who were raving about the delicious food, the energetic music, the thoughtful seating, and the kind and generous host, we would leave saying, what a fun party. What if instead of a party, we were talking about our lives? We off, we, how often we have chosen to be unhappy rather than seeing the best and celebrating the good. We have chosen to see only the struggles and complain about the bad. I wondered aloud how choosing to see the best in all situations might bring all of us a lot more joy. One of my colleagues com- commented, Jenny, I hear you, but if I choose to see the best in life, I'm going to get taken advantage of. Others affirmed her perspective. They were a little worried that if they didn't keep their guard up, people would see their naivety and they would be targeted. That's fair, I thought. I'll never forget what Elizabeth, another one on our team, said. So what? Wouldn't you be happier? Elizabeth is made of sunshine and sweetness, always smiling, always kind. Of course she'd say something like this. Yet, something about her response rang true. She was right. The alternative to a life unguarded is self-preservation and debilitating, there we go, pessimism. Who wants to live that way? The transforming power of awe. Cynicism has become esteemed in our culture, and as we've concluded, the cynics know something the rest of us don't. They are prepared and guarded and aware at a level that the rest of us are too flighty to grasp. But, at its core, cynicism isn't wonderful. In fact, it's not wonderful at all. Cynicism is always driven by fear for the future or by anger regarding the past. Either we're afraid of something that might not ever occur, or we project something that has occurred onto all the days that are to come. We buy into the lie that it's too risky to be vulnerable or hope for good things. 
Breen Brown calls this for, for, boy, for boiding joy. Scarcity and fear drive for boiding joy, she wrote in her book, Daring Greatly. We're afraid that the feeling of joy won't last, or that there won't be enough, or that the transition to disappointment will be too difficult. We've learned that giving in to joy at its best, setting ourselves up for disappointment at worst, inviting disaster. The enemy's strategy is to flood our thoughts with visions of all that is wrong in this broken, fallen world to the point we don't even think to look for the positive anymore. Cynicism just becomes the way we think and we don't even notice. Here are some questions to ask yourself to see whether cynicism has invaded your headspace. Do you get annoyed when people are optimistic? When someone is nice to you, do you wonder what that person wants? Do you consistently feel misunderstood? When things are going well, are you waiting for the bottom to fall out? Do you quickly notice people's flaws? Do you worry about getting taken advantage of? Are you guarded when you meet someone new? Do you wonder why people just can't get it together? Are you often sarcastic? Cynicism is destroying our ability to delight in the world around us and fully engage with others. God has an abundance of joy and delight for us, and we're missing it with arms crossed. What if there was another way to live? When researchers studied awe and beauty, they found an interesting connection. When we experience awe, we move towards others in beneficial ways. When we are overcome by the grandeur of snowy mountain peaks or delight by a beautiful song, when we sit silently in an old church and marvel at the way the sunlight seeps through the stained glass windows, or when we are delighted by our children's squills as they run through the sprinkler in the backyard, we let go of our it's-all-about-me fixation. When we are freed from being the center of our own worlds for just a moment, and in doing so, we become more invested in the well-being of others, more generous, less entitled. Have you experienced this? It's the moment when your heart swells and feels as if it might explode trying to take in how beautiful something is. Cynicism says, I'm surrounded by incompetence, fraudsters, and disappointment. Delight in God and his goodness tears down our walls and allows hope, trust, and worship to flood in. And guess how worship springs up in us when we look to the source of delight, God himself, instead of our temporary problems. Consider Paul's description of what happens when we, like the, like the Israelites, turn our gaze from the things that fade and look to the eternal God. Whenever, though, they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it, all of us. Nothing between us and God. Our face is shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. 
Just as Moses' face shone when he descended from the mountain where God had allowed him to see his glory, when God enters our lives, he works in us and makes our lives brighter and more beautiful. A lie. People are not trustworthy and life will not work out. But the truth? God is trustworthy and will, in the end, work all things together for good. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I choose delight in God and signs of his work in the world around me. On page 130, there's another diagram of the we have a choice, emotion down to consequence, or opposite, emotion up to consequence. So read through that. On page 131, the bitter taste of cynicism. Now, if you are a true cynic, you are... You aren't buying one word I'm saying. And I get it because I'm a recovering skilled cynic. In the months of my doubt, I picked up and practiced the skill of cynicism with precision. When healthy, I'm a cheerleader, an eternal optimist, a passionate, hope-driven Enneagram 7. But the cynicism that took root in my heart in, these, in those months grew masterfully hidden under the, guy, the disguise of coolness fineness and pride. In fact, I could, I hardly could see the truth for what it was. I'd become angry, annoyed, and afraid. A cynic is someone who shows a disposition to disbelieve in the sincerity or goodness of human motives and actions. And while this definition certainly played out for me, it hardly stopped there. Eventually, I began to distrust God too. For me, cynicism looked like a massive construction effort as I unknowingly built walls around my heart. I couldn't have told you at the time that I was evading true joy. If anything, my love of all things lighthearted trickled me into thinking I was plenty joyful. Instead of my life becoming continually brighter and more beautiful, as Paul described, my cynicism was like a dark cloud hovering over me. I was cynical, distrusting, and distant. Cynicism erodes our ability to see God rightly. Cynicism at its root is a refusal to believe that God is in control and God is good. Cynicism is in a inter, interpreting the world and God based on hurt you've experienced and the wounds that still lie gaping open. It forces you to look horizontally at people rather than vertically to God. What I couldn't see then was that hurt was absolutely driving my behavior. I was so exhausted from everything, the oppression, the despair, the process of trying to find health, that I decided true joy probably just wasn't attainable. What I thought was joy was really just the delight of chronic distraction. Then my growing cynicism and hurt were abruptly interrupted when I least expected it. I mentioned my friend Kurt Thomas, who took some time recently to invest in some of us at a leadership retreat. During one of our many group chats, I projected a not-so-loving vibe. Or at least that's what Kurt later would say. My slightly raised eyebrows, my arms crossed, folded against my chest, everything about my posture communicated three words to Kurt, leave me alone. Although I had experienced a lot of healing, I wasn't in the mood for invasive questions. 
I just wanted to eat queso with my friends and keep everyone else at what felt like a safe distance. Periodically, after teasing out a bit of wisdom related to our minds, our hearts, our experiences making our way through life, Kurt would check in by asking one person or another, how are you feeling right now? I was fine as long as that question wasn't directed at me, so I played it cool, refusing to make eye contact. Partway through the first day, Kirk dared to poke the bear. It was near the end of a group chat, and after allowing for a few moments of silence, Kirk looked at me and asked, How are you feeling right now? I stared at him for a second, then with a grin and a shrug said, Good. Who was I? This was a brilliant man whose work I esteem. We were lucky to have him there, and I was giving him the good treatment. I know it's grammatically correct to say fine, but I say good. It's going to be okay. Throughout the weekend, my strategy worked pretty well. As the less I proved a willing participant, the less Kirk seemed to call on me. But just when I thought I could escape our time together without divulging a stinking thing, something I never expected busted through my cynical guard. Before I tell you what happened, I should mention that cynicism usually grows because we think we deserve better than what we are getting. At the root of cynicism is crippling hurt. Cynicism says that nobody can be trusted, that we're never ever safe. My cynicism on our small retreat was prompted by an embarrassing thought. Seriously, I can't believe I'm about to tell you this. On the other side of my deep, dark spiritual spiral, I wasn't waking up at 3 a.m. anymore, but I was still a little bitter towards God. Here's why. I never would have said it out loud, but I've always lived with a delightful confidence that God liked me, that I was one of his favorites. I don't know whether God plays favorites, but I liked imagining his affection for me specifically. The dark spiral of doubt left me carrying around the fear that he could just accidentally drop me into a crevice like the bill you were supposed to pay that slipped into the gap between your desk and the wall. I felt as if I had fallen into a crack and he hadn't, he either hadn't noticed or hadn't cared enough to rescue me. I felt hurt by God. My fear had given way, away to a protective shell of cynicism that blocked not only the potential for hurt, but also the potential for joy. Let's look back at Philippians 4 where Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Yes, I had been faithful to evict certain gloom and doom thoughts from my mind, but unless I helped better thinking, move in, and settle down, I'd keep trapping myself in terrible thoughts. There was something here in Philippians 4 that I knew I should not miss. 
In my time with Kirk, I sensed Paul saying, Look, either you can try to guard your heart and mind your own, or you can surrender that guardship to God. My way of guarding my heart evidently involved sky-high walls and a fondness for good to mask my hurt and growing anger toward God and others. How are you, Jenny? Good, doing great, and now, still good. Better than good, really. You talk. Let's talk about you. God's ways, God's way was better. His way would lead me to peace. Or, that's how I read what Paul was saying anyway. If I would practice thinking what was honorable, what was just, what was lovely and excellent and all the rest, I would experience the peace of God in my heart. I really, really wanted that peace. Then why was I still so cynical? I'm going to stop there. It's at the bottom of page 134. Um, I will pick up there and do part two a little bit later.